Well, we are coming uh, now to the ministry of the Word. Our scripture passage this morning is taken from the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 20. Uh, Luke chapter 20, we'll be finishing the 20th chapter of Luke this morning. Luke chapter 20, verses 41 through 47. I invite you to turn to that passage in your Bibles, Luke 20, verses 41 through 47. Follow along as I read and uh, keep your Bibles open as I preach so that you can test what you hear against the Word of God. Luke chapter 20, verses 41 through 47. Jesus says, But he said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Thus, David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes, who like to walk around in long robes, and love greetings in the marketplaces, and love the best seats in the synagogues, and the, best, and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. This is indeed the word of God for the people of God this morning. Now, as you have your Bibles open, I also encourage you to keep your fingers in, or a piece of paper or whatever, in Luke chapter 20. But you may want to also turn to Psalm 110. Um, I'm going to ask that you turn to Psalm 110 a little later on in the sermon, so you might as well do it now. Psalm 110, it is the psalm that Jesus quotes in this passage. It also happens to be, I believe, the most cited, most quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament. Psalm 110. Uh, and as you're turning there, keeping your fingers in Luke 20, keeping your finger in Psalm 110, let me remind you of where we are at in chapter 20 of the Gospel of Luke. Uh, chapter 20 occurs on the heels of the event we call the Triumphal Entry, Palm Sunday. And Jesus, since he had entered into the city of Jerusalem, made his way to the temple cleansed, purified, liberated, you might say, the temple. And since then, he has been in the temple teaching. And as he's been doing that, as he's been teaching, there has been these waves of religious leaders coming to Jesus, challenging him, trying to discredit Jesus before the eyes of the crowds and uh, even trying to discredit him before the eyes of the Roman Empire. And Jesus has just been dealing with these waves of opposition that have been washing up upon him over and over again. First, you may remember it was an inquisition sent by the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the high Jewish court. And this came on the heels of Jesus cleansing the temple and uh, taking his seat in the temple as a teacher. And this inquisition wanted to know, Jesus, by what authority do you do these things? Jesus, of course shames that inquisition and they go away they withdraw then as they withdraw they they determine to send spies to jesus and these spies come and they watch and listen to what jesus says and then they use flattery they use flattery and they want to ask jesus a question jesus is it legal for us to pay taxes to caesar remember their intent was well if we can't get jesus to slip up in the things he says religiously Let's try to get him to say something which Rome could interpret 
as uh, rebellious language, so then Rome will arrest Jesus and uh, put him to death. But of course, Jesus um, shames those spies. He sees the trap, he gets out of the trap, and instead he ends up entrapping those who sought to entrap him. After the spies came two weeks ago, then the Sadducees came. The Sadducees, they too were part of the Sanhedrin. These were men who were, as we said, were the strict biblicists of their day. They believed that the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, the writings of Moses, were the only infallible rule for faith and life. Oddly enough, they were also naturalists. They did not believe in the spiritual reality to creation. They believed only God, only Yahweh, the Lord, is spiritual. Everything else is merely physical. When you die, that's it. You're done. There are no angels, no demons, no souls which last forever. There's no life after death, and there's no resurrection of the body awaiting the people of God. And so the Sanhedrin, or I'm sorry, the Sadducees come, and they ask him questions around the resurrection of the body, and they present to him this absurd scenario of a woman who has seven husbands in her life, and which one will be her husband in the resurrection? Jesus, of course, silences them, responds to them, and at the end of that exchange, you hear the scribes say to Jesus, Teacher, you have answered well. And that's where we left off two weeks ago. The scribes say to Jesus, Teacher, you have answered well. Well, our text today picks right up and we see that it is now the scribes' turn to get put in their place by the Master, Jesus Christ. And you may have noticed as we read these verses this morning that Jesus' approach to dealing with the scribes is a little different than how he has dealt with these other groups of people. In every other interaction in chapter 20 of Luke's Gospel, Jesus played the defense, you might say. He responded to questions posed to him. But here in our opening verse today, verse 41, it is Jesus, it is Jesus who initiates this engagement between him and the scribes. He becomes the aggressor in challenging the scribes. Now, we should ask, who are the scribes? Remember, we had to ask, who were the Sadducees? What did they believe? Who are the scribes? The scribes were a, a portion of the Pharisees. They were like a subset of the Pharisees. I think I said before in, Luke's, in this sermon series on Luke's Gospel, every scribe was a Pharisee, but not every Pharisee was a scribe. This is a subset of the Pharisees. And their job was to diligently study and apply the law of God to the life of the nation of Israel. But it was also their job to preserve uh, the scriptures of the Old Testament. They were the ones who copied the Hebrew manuscripts. And we have to say what we know about the Hebrew scribes, they did a phenomenal job. The the manuscripts of the Old Testament that we have today recovered from the, the scribes, they are remarkably consistent, uh, they are remarkably accurate, and so the scribes were very good at transcribing and preserving the scriptures of the Old Testament, and the scribes were also charged with providing commentary on the Old Testament. So they were supposed to be the biblical scholars of their day. They were the guys to bring it into a modern context, they are like the guys who I, I read and study every week when I prepare to preach the Word of God to you. They were like the commentators 
uh, who uh, the preachers in uh, Jesus' day would have been reading and studying so that they could preach the word of God to the people of Israel. They were experts in language, experts in the texts of scripture. They were men who were supposed to be able to provide wise commentary on the Bible. And that may be then, because of their role, that may be why Jesus, in dealing with them, gets so aggressive, goes on the offense. Their calling was very high, beloved. They, they were to know the word. They were to preserve the word. They were to teach the word. They were to apply faithfully the word of God within Israel's religious and civil life. And so in this moment, in the temple, with Jesus knowing he only has a few days left in his earthly ministry, he is going to now expose the scribes before all the people as being false teachers. Now it should be said, not every scribe was a false teacher, but the scribes who are engaging Jesus in this moment are false teachers. And Jesus, the good shepherd, because he loves his sheep, is going to expose them for who they are. He's going to let his sheep know that they could not and should not entrust their spiritual care to this group of scribes. And so, as I said, Jesus goes on the offensive, asking the scribes a question so as to expose them as the false teachers that they were. And in doing so, beloved, I believe, in, in exposing the scribes, I believe that Jesus really is exposing false, all false teachers, even uh, false teachers that you and I may encounter today. In this exchange, I believe that Jesus gives us two identifiers, two marks, which will help us in this day and age to recognize and avoid false teachers. What made the scribes dangerous, what made them false teachers in the days of Christ, they are the same thing which makes certain teachers today dangerous and false. And so we need to understand these two marks uh, that made the scribes false teachers and apply it to ourselves. The first mark is this. False teachers, all false teachers, teach and preach a false Christ. And therefore, they teach and preach a false gospel. All teachers, all false teachers teach a false Christ and therefore a false gospel. That is the first mark of a false teacher. The second mark is that all false teachers pursue their own glory instead of the glory of God. They pursue their own glory instead of the glory of God. And so the first mark of a false teacher, they teach a false Christ and therefore a false gospel. This is found in verses 41 through 44. Jesus asks the scribes really a riddle. He says, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? In what sense, Jesus is asking the scribes, in what sense is the Christ, the long-promised Messiah, the son of David? Now we need to understand the overwhelming testimony of the Old Testament, especially from the covenant that God made with King David himself, was clear. The overwhelming testimony in the Old Testament is that when the Messiah comes, he would be from the lineage, the household of King David. He would be a descendant from David. It was a requirement. If someone is to be the Messiah, they must be of the household of David. This is why Matthew and Luke take time in the beginning of their Gospels to trace the family lineage of Jesus Christ. 
why they take time to give us the genealogies of Joseph and Mary. Matthew and Luke need us to know that Jesus was indeed born in the family of David. In his human nature, he is very much so a son of David. And so again, Jesus asks, how can they say that the Christ, that is the long-promised Messiah, would be David's son? And the obvious answer to that is, well, by descent. He's of the family, the household of King David. His genealogy can be traced to the king. But then Jesus adds to this question. And here's where the riddle gets complex. And if you have Psalm 110, turn to it now. Because Jesus will quote Psalm 110, a psalm written by King David, a psalm that was rightly recognized by everybody as being a messianic psalm, meaning a psalm which looked forward to the coming of the Messiah. And Jesus says, how can we say that the Christ will be the son of David? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Thus, da I'm sorry, David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? This is the riddle Jesus gives the scribes. And we need to understand two things. We need to understand two things to understand why this question is indeed a riddle. The first thing we need to understand is about Psalm 110 itself. And about Judy, uh, the second thing that we need to understand is about the nature of Judaism itself. So first, Psalm 110. Hopefully by now you have it open. You will see the opening line. The Lord said to my Lord. Now in English, it sounds like the same word is being used. The Lord said to my Lord. In the Hebrew language, this opening statement would actually read, Yahweh says to my Adonai, sit down at my right hand. Some of you may know that in the Old Testament, whenever you see the word Lord in all capital letters, that represents the personal name of God, Yahweh. And I don't have time to explain why today we take this word Yahweh and we make it all capital letters, the word Lord in all capital letters. But just know that in your English translation, when you're reading the Old Testament and you see the word Lord in all capital letters in the Hebrew manuscripts, it is the name of God, the name Yahweh or the name Jehovah. But in the Old Testament, when you see the word Lord and it is not all in capital letters, that indicates a different title. It's not a name. It's not the personal name of God. It is the title. And the title in Psalm 110 is the title Adonai, my Lord. And so Jesus says that in Psalm 110, David says, Yahweh says to my Adonai, my Lord, sit at my right hand. So that's what you need to understand about Psalm 110. Now here is what you need to understand about Judaism so that you can understand then why this is such a perplexing riddle for the scribes. You need to know that in Judaism, no father would ever call his son Adonai. He would never call his son Lord. And in fact, that is all the more true for the king of Israel. The very one who, King David was the king of Israel, the very one who was supposed to represent 
God's authority and rule and reign over his covenant people. King David, when he became king, never in his earthly life called anybody Adonai Lord. Before he was king, he would have called his father Jesse Lord. He would have called King Saul Lord. But once he was king, never. He would have never referred to anyone as Adonai, especially Solomon or any of his sons. No father in Judaism would refer to their son as Adonai, as Lord. And so now that you understand that, do you see how Christ questioned to the scribes is quite the riddle? He is saying to them, listen, you say and you believe that the Christ, the Messiah, will be of the household of David. He will be David's son. And you are 100% correct about that. But what I want to know, since you are supposed to be the biblical scholars, since you are entrusted with teaching the word to my people, I want to know then, what I want to know is how is it that David calls his son my Lord? How can David, who called no man Lord, say that Yahweh says to my Lord, the Messiah, the Christ, Adonai, sit down at my right hand. How does that work out? Why does David call the Messiah my Lord if he is David's son? Do you get that? you see why this is a riddle for the scribes? And the thing is, beloved, just even from Psalm 110, the scribes should have been able to answer this question. The scribes should have known the answer. Because look at what David says about the Messiah, about the Christ, in Psalm 110. He says, The Lord Yahweh says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand. The language of being seated at the right hand of God is language which reflects God's own rule and authority. To sit at the right hand of God is to symbolize the reality that the Christ shares in the very glory and reign of God. Every Old Testament scholar would have understood that. And then David tells us, David writes in Psalm 110, that Yahweh tells his Lord that he will sit there until I make your enemies your footstool. And here, again, the imagery is that uh, the enemies of God would be forced, in a sense, to lie in the dust with the feet of the Christ resting upon their necks. It was a sign of complete and utter dominance over his enemies. This is who David says his son, his Lord, the Messiah, is. He is the one who shares in the glory, in the majesty, in the rule, in the reign of Yahweh himself. He is the one who would have complete and total victory over all of his enemies. And that is why. That is why David calls the Christ, although he would be his son through family lineage, that is why he calls the Christ, my Lord, Adonai. David knew, and he made it clear in Psalm 110, that the Messiah would be one who was far greater than himself, even though he would come from his offspring. David knew that the Messiah would not just be his earthly descendant. David knew 
the Messiah would be God the Son. That he truly would be his Lord Adonai. And so Jesus says to the scribes, tell me, I want you to say it in front of all these people. Tell me who you believe the Messiah will be. You say he will be the son of God or the son of David. That is good. But I want to know more. If he is merely the son of David through lineage, then how can it be that David calls him Adonai? And every indication from Luke's gospel is that the scribes could not answer that riddle. They should have been able to say, David calls him Lord because he's not just David's earthly descendant. He is the very son of God himself. It would have been a confession that the Messiah would not just be an earthly man, but also God in the flesh, fully divine. But they couldn't do that because they didn't believe that. They had a deficient view of the Christ. And St. Ambrose, who was St. Augustine's uh, mentor, by the way, St. Ambrose once said, Jesus did not rebuke the scribes because they failed to acknowledge the Messiah as the son of David. He rebuked them because they failed to acknowledge the Messiah as the very Son of God himself in the flesh. Listen, beloved, ever since we began this study in the Gospel of Luke, and I know it's been a long time, 80-some weeks in this book, I have been telling you that many Jews in the days of Christ had a deficient and wrong understanding of who the Messiah is and what his mission would be. They were expecting a Messiah who would be a military leader, a man who would enter into the holy city, overthrow Rome, and reestablish the glory of the nation of Israel. And while we might read that, and we might even be tempted to scoff at that understanding and say, how could they be so misguided about who the Messiah is and what he would do? How can they see and hear the things that Jesus did and said and be so misguided about the reality of who the Messiah would be how? How can they get it so wrong? The reality is they got it wrong because the men who were supposed to teach them about the Messiah got it wrong. The shepherds of the people of God were false teachers. And so the people of God themselves were deceived. And they themselves would reject the true Messiah. The scribes, they believed that the Christ would be David's son. They did not believe that the Messiah would be the Son of God. They did not believe that the Messiah would be, yes, a true man, but also truly God. They simply saw him. And they even saw the very kingdom of God itself in earthly human terms. They thought of salvation in terms of political liberation. They thought the Messiah would save them from political tyranny. That he would establish David's throne forever in Jerusalem. Yes, but they thought there would never be a time when a descendant of David would never sit on that throne. They thought the nation of Israel as a geopolitical state with a king from David's lineage would be established forever. And that is not what Jesus the Messiah was about. It is a false Christ, a false gospel. The Messiah, one who is nothing more than an earthly military leader and liberator as they believed, that Messiah is a Messiah who cannot save. That is not a Messiah who could ever uh, hold the keys to death and Hades as we heard last Sunday. That is a Messiah who can never deliver his people from the greatest enemies of sin and death and the devil. What good, beloved, are earthly thrones, 
are liberated and free nations when the body will still die and the soul perish. We, those people, we today need a Savior, a Messiah, beloved, who can truly liberate us. Set us free from sin and the punishment it deserves. Set us free from the power of death and the grave. A Savior who can raise us to new everlasting life. And only Jesus Christ, truly God and truly man, the Son of David, the Son of God, our Adonai, who is now seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, only He is that Messiah. That is the Messiah that the scribes should have been teaching to the people of Israel. Instead, like all false teachers, they taught a false Christ, a false Messiah, and thus they presented before the people a false gospel, a gospel that could not ultimately save anyone. And that is the first mark of a false teacher. They teach a false Christ and a false gospel. Jesus then gives us another mark, a second mark of a false teacher found in verses 45 through 47. False teachers seek their own glory instead of seeking the glory of God. Jesus says to his disciples, but loud enough so that all the crowds could hear, and probably the scribes as well, beware the scribes. And he gives us six reasons why the people should beware. First, he says, the scribes love to walk around in long robes. In other words, they paraded themselves in fine linen, dressing themselves like priests and kings in the marketplace. They love to, as one commentator said, put on a ritz. Secondly, they loved, greeting, they loved greetings in the marketplaces. This means that the scribes were people who loved to be greeted publicly with high honors. They loved when they would go to the market and people would be like, hello, rabbi, and maybe even bow down before them. They loved when they were greeted that way so that everyone else could hear how, who they were and how important they were. Thirdly, they loved the best seats in the synagogue. This is so different from us today. I have to beg you all to sit close. <laughs> These, these scribes love to sit up on the platform uh, where the liturgists, the one leading the prayers and, and the services were standing. They loved to be seated up front so that the worshipers who came into the synagogue could see how important they were, how close to God they were because of how close they were to the, to the law being read in the synagogue. Fourthly, they loved the best seat at feasts. When the high ups in society would hold banquets and feasts, they loved to occupy the seats of honor. Fifthly, they devoured widows. Now, understand widows were seen in Jewish society as the most vulnerable of all people. That's why the law demanded that widows and the fatherless were cared for by the nation of Israel. They devoured widows. In other words, they added to the oppression of the oppressed. And we don't quite know exactly what Jesus is referencing here when he says they devoured widows, but somehow, we know somehow they were taking advantage of them and getting rich off them. Sixthly, they would make long prayers. And what Jesus is talking about here are public prayers where the scribes would basically pray on and on and on so that everybody could hear how holy they were. Listen to how eloquently they pray. Aren't they the most holy people in the world? That's what they love to do. And Jesus says, beware the scribes, because they, like all false teachers, what are the scribes doing in all these things? They are glorifying themselves. They love 
to glorify themselves before the masses. They love the attention. They long for the attention. They long for the accolades of men. And isn't it interesting, beloved, many of the things that Christ condemns when he gives the warnings of the scribes, they do deal with great earthly wealth, the best clothes, the best seats in the house, even getting rich off widows. You know, I want to be careful about this because I'm sure there are false teachers who are very poor, and I'm sure there are good, solid teachers who, uh, maybe in comparison with us, have a great amount of earthly wealth. But I do find it interesting. I find it interesting, the reality that many of the things Jesus condemns in the scribes deal with earthly wealth. And in preparation for the sermon, I researched the 10 richest pastors in America. And that list is populated with people who are outright false teachers, heretics, people who do not preach the true gospel, people who preach what is known as the prosperity gospel, the gospel that Jesus wants you to be healthy and wealthy. You just need to sow a seed of faith. Give this amount of dollars and God will bless you. Talk about getting rich off of the poor, off of the widows. The list is populated by people like Kenneth Copeland, Pat Robertson, Joel Osteen, Creflo Dollar, Jesse Duplantis, T.D. Jakes, who, by the way, is a modalist. If you're taking my Sunday school class on the Trinity, you should know what that is. He believes a false view of the Trinity. Paula White, Benny Hinn, Joyce Myers, all false teachers, all exceedingly wealthy. Kenneth Copeland, I didn't know this until I looked it up, is almost a billionaire. A billionaire! As a supposed minister of the gospel, he is almost a billionaire. I don't think that this is a coincidence. It's not too different from who the scribes were. But again, earthly wealth put aside. The one thing that all these false teachers have in common is that they pursue their own glory instead of the glory of God. They want the spotlight on them. They want the hordes of followers. They want a million likes for all their tweets. They want the brand. They want their vision executed. They want the recognition, the respect, the honor, the most downloaded podcasts and most bought books. They want much made out of them while they make very little of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. These are the marks, beloved, of false teachers. And Jesus says in verse 47 that the scribes and all false teachers... All false teachers will receive a greater condemnation. He is saying there is a more severe punishment for false teachers. I know we have this popular idea in American evangelicalism that all sin is equal. And in one sense that's true and that even the quote-unquote small sin is an eternal rebellion against the eternally holy God and deserves eternal condemnation. But... The Bible does teach that some sins are more heinous than others. Jesus has declared this truth to us before when he pronounced judgment on Capernaum. And he said, it will be better for Sodom on the day of judgment than it will be for Capernaum. In the eyes of the just God, while all sin deserves the full rate of his wrath for all eternity, some people, if they do not repent, and come to Christ by faith, the true Christ by faith, some people will receive a greater condemnation. False teachers 
will receive a greater condemnation. This is why the Apostle James says, not many of you should aspire to be teachers. It is dangerous, eternally dangerous. And those who like the scribes, those who preach a false Christ, who preach a false gospel, those who seek their own glory instead of the glory of Christ, they will face a more severe judgment. We, beloved, you and I, the entire household of God, we need to beware of these false teachers. We need to give them no space within the church of Christ. Give them no voice in the church. That is one reason why I named names from this pulpit of who false teachers are. You need to know who they are. And it's not slander. It is not slander. If it is true, it is not slander for me as your pastor to warn you of them. We need to be warning God's people. Just as Christ warned his sheep on that day, beware the scribes, we need to warn each other of false teachers. We need to guard ourselves, our families, and the church against them. How do we do that? Well, we do it, beloved, by getting to know the true Jesus, the true gospel he proclaimed better and better. We protect ourselves, our families, our churches from false teachers by becoming more and more familiar with the Bible and the Christ that the Bible proclaims. You know, maybe I was thinking about this. It might be that as I was naming some of those false teachers, maybe, I hope not, but maybe some of you heard names of people who you read or listen to. And you might say, Pastor, wait a minute. This person has been an incredible blessing in my life. How can you say that they are false teachers? Beloved, I say it because they are. There's not a single person on that list that I named who is preaching the true Christ, who is preaching Christ crucified in and out of season. They are not preaching repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And if they are not preaching the Christ that is revealed in the pages of scripture, the Jesus who is fully God and fully man, the pre-existent second person of the Trinity, God himself in the flesh, if they are not preaching that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, then they are a false teacher preaching a different Christ and a different gospel. And I don't care how much Christianese they use. I don't care how many Bible verses they quote. I don't care how much they sound like a true Christian. If they are not preaching the truth of Jesus Christ and his gospel, they are false. And the reason why some of you aren't able to recognize the reality that they are false is because you are not familiar enough with the word of God. You may have been a Christian your whole life, 30, 40, 50, 60 years or more, but if you can't recognize a false teacher and a false gospel when you hear it, then you need to grow in your understanding of the word. It's that simple. I don't say that to condemn anyone. I say that to encourage you. Encourage you to get out of the shallows and into the deeps of the Word of God. Get off of your steady diet of milk and start feasting on God's meat. Beloved, I want you to know that this church, at least as long as I'm pastor, and hopefully well beyond that, this church wants to be a place which feeds people the meat of God's word. 
We want to be a place that helps you become more familiar with the true gospel and the true Jesus Christ. We want to be a place which helps you grow in your love and in your faith and in your knowledge and in your understanding of the Bible and of the one who is proclaimed on every page of the Bible, Jesus Christ the Messiah. We want to be a place who proclaims the one who is truly able to save. The one who is ruling and reigning right now at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. The one who will make his enemies his footstool. Our church, and I know it's true of all of our elders, all of our deacons, all of our teachers, our church, we want to make Christ known. We want to be a place that helps you grow in your love and knowledge of him and of his word. Beloved, as we close today, I want to ask this congregation just one question. I want to make one request of you. And that request is to please pray for your shepherds. Pray for me. Pray for your elders. Pray for everyone who has any sort of teaching ministry in this church. Pray that the Lord would keep us faithful in the call that he has placed on us. I could be wrong about a lot of things, but if I get Jesus Christ wrong in the gospel, if I start doing things to build a brand and seek my own glory instead of his, I'm condemned. And a worse condemnation than what some of you may receive. Pray for us. Pray that the Lord would protect us and even hinder us, stop us from ever preaching a false Christ and a false gospel. Pray that the Lord would stop us and hinder us from ever seeking our own glory instead of the glory of Christ. Now we can disagree on a lot of points of doctrine, as I said. We can disagree on some theological points, but we cannot be wrong on the person and work of Jesus Christ. We can't get the gospel wrong. So pray. Pray for the shepherds of this church. Pray for the church body that God, by His providence, would preserve this place as a place where the true Jesus is always proclaimed. The true gospel is always preached. You don't understand. If you would study church history, you would understand how close every church is to falling off the cliff and to being a false church. We're no exception. The church of Ephesus went from Paul writing the book of Ephesians and saying he is so blessed to know them and rejoices at how that church functions through the opening of Revelation, the book of Revelation, where John warns, Jesus says you are in severe danger of Jesus coming and removing your lampstand. That was an act of judgment, which basically Jesus would declare the church in Ephesus a false church. One generation from the time Paul wrote Ephesians to the time Jesus is standing before John and warning them, you are in danger of becoming a false church. Every church is on the edge because we are fallible humans and we need your prayer. We need the prayers of the saints. And pray that God by his providence would preserve this church, as I said, as a place where the true Jesus is always proclaimed, the true Jesus is always preached, a place where his Glory is always sought. May no false teacher ever gain a foothold here among this body.